You're listening to one of the fully public episodes of Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To gain access to full-length versions of all our episodes, support us on Patreon at 2 for T. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. Uh, as you may have gathered, you are listening to Two for Tea, and I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm joined today by three guests, and we are here on the um, occasion, uh, the anniversary of Christopher Hitchens' death, ten, the 10-year anniversary of Christopher Hitchens' death, which it will be when, when people are, when this is uh, released. It will be the anniversary when this is released. Uh, to talk about Christopher Hitchens, I'm joined by Ben Burgess, who has recently published a book on uh, called Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong. That part is likely to prove controversial tonight. And Why He Still Matters. And Ben is a Jacobin columnist, an adjunct philosophy professor, and the host of the podcast and YouTube show, Give Them an Argument. Ben was also, has also been a previous guest on this podcast. Ben came on this podcast. Uh, we had a long debate about free will um, with uh, John Rosen. And John and I agreed and we disagreed with Ben. So every time Ben is on this podcast, he is ganged up upon. But he still keeps coming back for more. He's clearly just a masochist. And uh, I'm also joined by Matt Johnson. Matt <coughs> is a writer who has been published in ARIO magazine and a few other minor publications like Quillette and the Bulwark and less important periodicals like that. Um, and he is the author of the forthcoming book, How Hitchens Can Save the Left, Rediscovering Fearless Liberalism in an Age of Counter-Enlightenment, which will be published by Pitchstone in the fall of 2022. And I'm also joined by Daniel Sharp. Uh, Daniel is a freelance writer, a graduate of the University of Edinburgh, and he is my editorial assistant at ARIO and the arts and books correspondent at ARIO. And he has written for many outlets. And he is currently writing about working on a book about Christopher Hitchens for Pitchstone Publishing, which I imagine will be published in 2022. Um, since all three of you have written or are currently writing books about Christopher Hitchens, maybe we could begin by having each of you read a short passage from your writings about Hitch and um, saying a little bit about why you've chosen that particular passage to read. Sure. If, if appropriate, say why you've chosen it, but maybe just begin by reading a, a short passage. Um, Daniel, do you, would you like to begin? Well, I'm the, I'm the least advanced in the progress of my, of my book, uh, but I have written uh, about Hitchens before, uh, in particular a few months ago for Aerial magazine. 
uh, I wrote uh, an article about about Hitchens and Salman Rushdie and the fatwa. And since I think that that aspect of his career is a pretty pivotal, uh, a pretty pivotal one, uh, I'll read a little bit from that essay. So I start off, I talk about um, how we failed to learn the lessons of 1989. There were heroes along with villains, cowards and prevaricators in the case of Salman Rushdie's unfunny Valentine from Ayatollah Khomeini, which sentenced him to death and forced him into hiding for a decade for writing a beautiful novel. For example, there was a Christopher Hitchens, not just an Ayatollah and an array of Berger-style equivocators. Hitchens was one of the great champions of free speech in our time, and it is instructive to remember his solidarity with Rushdie during the Fatwa years, as well as that of Rushdie's many other brave defenders, including some who paid very dearly for it. There are lessons here that can still guide us three decades on. The poltroons and equivocators of the Fatwa years form a list too long to recapitulate in full, but they include George H.W. Bush, Margaret Thatcher and various other British and American Conservatives who resented Rushdie's radicalism and anti-racism and seemed hardly able to contain their glee as if they thought the chickens had come home to roost. On the left, such luminaries as John Berger, John le Carre and Jermaine Greer tussied at the offence that had been caused, thus blaming the victim. Leaders of fellow monotheisms complained about insults to religion. As Hitchens put it, the spring of 1989 ought to be remembered for its harvest of sorry evasions. Rushdie himself, perhaps forgivably, tried to apologise, declaring falsely that he adhered to the Islamic faith, but to no avail, which only reinforces the lesson that negotiation with such people is impossible as well as undesirable. But the main lesson of the Fatwa years is the need for solidarity. So it is fitting that on the evening on which Edward Said received a pre-publication draft of the Satanic Verses in the mail from Rushdie, he happened to be having dinner with Christopher Hitchens, Rushdie's friend and ally. In a note enclosed in the package, Rushdie asked Said for advice because he thought the novel might cause some offence. In his memoir, Hitch 22, Hitchens recalls how he felt later when he heard about the fatwa. I felt at once that here was something that completely committed me. It was, if I can phrase it like this, a matter of everything I hated versus everything I loved. In the hate column, dictatorship, religion, stupidity, demagogy, censorship, bullying and intimidation. In the love column, literature, irony, humour, the individual and the defence of free expression. Plus, of course, friendship, though I like to think my reaction would have been the same if I hadn't known Salman at all. No more root and branch challenge to the values of the Enlightenment on the bicentennial of the fall of the Bastille or to the First Amendment to the Constitution could be imagined. And Hitch not only felt complete commitment to Rushdie's defence, he also showed it, as did many others, including Susan Sontag, who was absolutely superb, according to Hitchens, corralling uncertain writers into attending events in support of Rushdie. Norman Mailer, says Hitchens, was actually talked out of raising money for a reprisal hit on the Ayatollah. Hitchens himself suggested that writers and intellectuals sign a public declaration saying that they too were, quote, involved in the publication of the Satanic Verses. This declaration was published in the 3rd March 1989 edition of the Times Literary Supplement with over 700 signatures. This principled strategy of showing identification and solidarity with a persecuted figure was, echo was echoed, albeit in an attenuated and somewhat ineffective form, by the Jesuit Charlie declarations in response to the 2015 Charlie Hebdo shootings. It remains the best strategy for those of us who value free speech today. 
In March 1992, Rushdie travelled to Washington, D.C., but his planned meeting with top congressional legislators was cancelled, reportedly because of pressure from the Bush administration, just an author on a book tour, explained the White House press secretary unconvincingly. Later, having met Vaclav Havel and Mary Robinson, Rushdie hoped Bush's successor, Bill Clinton, might be his next supporter. Hitchens took a lead role in trying to get Rushdie together with Clinton. After meeting with a series of evasions, Hitchens finally succeeded with the help of George Stephanopoulos and others, and Rushdie received a presidential handshake, which Clinton soon afterwards declared to be informal and not for the record. Alas. While in Washington, Rushdie stayed at Hitchens' apartment, which had been turned into an armed command post by the security services, as he recalls in Hitch 22 which also contains a lovely word portrait of a Thanksgiving spent with Rushdie, during which the pair discussed literature and culture. This was the Salman I wish the world could see and hear. After the visit, Hitchens was informed by a security official that there was trustworthy intelligence that the Iranians wanted to kill Hitchens and his family in retaliation for his part in hosting the visit. Though we should have woken up long ago, on 14th of February 1989 at the latest, and stood up for the principles of liberty, we at least have the examples of heroic men and women, past and present, to inspire us, including those who banded together to produce a volume entitled For Rushdie, Essays by Arab and Muslim Writers in Defence of Free Speech, a collection by persecuted freethinkers who identified with the novelist and wanted to defend him and whom Rushdie never fails to mention in his defences of freedom. The censors, whatever form they take, are therefore enemies of one of the things that make us human in the first place. Censorship is as unhuman as it is inhumane. We must stand firm in defence of what Milton incisively calls the known rules of ancient liberty. As Rushdie writes, free speech is the whole thing, the whole ball game. Free speech is life itself. We must reject both the practice of fatwa and the psychology that underlies it. Wherever there is a Salman Rushdie, we are called upon to channel the spirit of Christopher Hitchens. Thank you. Um, Matt, would you also like to read a piece from your book about Hitchens? I would love your, to. Your forthcoming book, which I have read a review copy of. Um, yeah. So Hitchens didn't make it easy on the apostate hunters. To many, he was a coarser version of Norman Pedoritz when he talked about Iraq and a radical humanist truth teller when he went on Fox News to lambaste the Christian right. If he gave Falwell an enema, he told Sean Hannity the day after Jerry Falwell's death, he could be buried in a matchbox. Then he gave Islam the same treatment, and he was suddenly a drooling neocon again. He called for the removal of Saddam Hussein and the arrest of Kissinger at the same time. He endorsed the war on terror, but condemned waterboarding and signed his name to an ACLU lawsuit against the NSA for warrantless surveillance. He defied easy categorization, a socialist who spurned ideology, an internationalist who became a patriot, a man of the left who was reviled by the left. The left isn't a single amorphous entity. It's a vast constellation of often conflicting ideas and principles. Hitchens' style of radicalism is now out of fashion on the left, but has a long and venerable history. George Orwell's unwavering opposition to totalitarianism and censorship fired Rustin's advocacy for universal civil rights without appealing to tribalism and identity politics. The post-communist anti-totalitarianism that emerged on the European left, especially in France in the 1970s and 1980s. Hitchens described himself as a First Amendment absolutist, an echo of historic left-wing struggles for free expression. From Eugene V. Debs' campaign for the right of dissent during World War I to the Berkeley free speech movement, 
He argued that unfettered free speech and inquiry would always make civil society stronger. Hitchens believed politics is division by definition, but his most fundamental political and moral conviction was universalism. He loathed nationalism and argued that the international system should be built around a common standard for justice and ethics, a standard that should apply to Kissinger, just as it should apply to Slobodan, Milosevic, and Saddam Hussein. He believed in the concept of global citizenship, which is why he firmly supported international institutions like the European Union. He didn't just despise religion because he regarded it as a form of totalitarian domination. He also recognized that it's an infinitely replenishable wellspring of tribal hatred. He opposed identity politics because he didn't think our social and civic lives should be reduced to rigid categories based on melanin, X chromosomes, and sexuality. He recognized the, the Enlightenment values of individual rights, freedom of expression and conscience, humanism, pluralism, and democracy are universal. They provide the most stable, just, and rational foundation for any civil society, whether they're observed in America or Europe or Iraq. And yes, he argued that these values are for export. Thanks very much, Matt. You're um, ben, let's hear from you. In 2005, British Member of Parliament George Galloway called Christopher Hitchens a drink-sodden former Trotskyist popinjay. The two men would later have a public debate at Baruch College in New York, but nothing either of them said there was as memorable as the original insult. There was certainly some truth to the drink-sodden part. A few years later, when an interviewer asked Hitchens, A, what things he couldn't be without when he traveled, and B, what his favorite whiskey was, Hitch responded that those sounded like the same question to him. The single answer was Johnny Walker Black. In his introduction to Martin Amos's father's Kingsley's uh, book, Everyday Drinking, Hitchens considers and rejects the maxim that alcohol is, quote, a good servant, but a bad master, unquote. This is a nice try, he says, but the plain fact is that it makes other people and life itself a good deal less boring. In a 2003 piece in Vanity Fair, Hitchens recommends observing the same rule about gin martinis and indeed about all gin drinks that you would about female breasts. One is far too few and three is one too many. Responding to this in Counterpunch, Hitchens' former colleague at The Nation magazine, Alexander Coburn, said that he'd seen the man having trouble bringing a lighted match and the first cigarette of the morning into productive contact. Coburn concluded that Hitch was more of a six-breast guy. By 2010, Hitchens had probably heard more than enough of this kind of thing to start feeling defensive. In a Slate article called A Short Footnote About the Grape and the Grain, he protests at the fantastical stories being told about his nights of boozing. House guest interviewers, he said, were constantly bringing him bottles of Johnny Walker as if they were propitiating a demon. He doesn't exactly say he wants them to stop, but he does want to set the record straight. He points out his industrious schedule, speaking, writing, at least a thousand words of printable copy every day, classroom teaching and debates. Could he really do all this if he were a hopeless drunk? I work at home, he said, where there's indeed a bar room and could suit myself, but I don't. At about half past midday, a decent slug of Mr. Walker's Amber Restorative, cut with Perrier water, an ideal delivery system, and no ice. At luncheon, perhaps half a bottle of red wine, not, not always more, but never less. Then back to the desk and ready to repeat the treatment at the evening meal. No after-dinner drinks. How about the rest of Galloway's charges? If, like me, you'd never heard anyone say Poppinjay in any other context— it's an archaic word for parrot and an only slightly less archaic word for a vain and pompous person. Think peacocking. 
as with the question of whether the schedule of daily drinking described in On the Grape and the Grain sounds like a little or a lot, I'll leave the fairness or unfairness of the pop and jay charge to the judgment of the reader. The part about Hitch's early affinity for the politics of assassinated communist dissident Leon Trotsky, on the other hand, is unambiguously true. Even if reasonable people can disagree with Galloway's insinuation that that's a bad thing. Thanks, Ben. I'm going to footnote that by saying that in one of the rare times in which he publicly alludes to his identity as a fellow Parsi, Indian Zoroastrian, Freddie Mercury called himself a, um, he, he said, I can't help it. It's in, it's in my blood. I can't help strutting around like a Persian popinjay. So that's it. <laughs> Whenever I hear that <laughs> word, that is the first thing that comes to my mind. I'd like to ask all of you, maybe beginning with Ben, actually, um, what it was that first attracted you to Hitchens' writing and why you decided to write a book on Hitchens. Um, So I have to say, in Ben's case, um, within Matt's book itself, uh, there are a couple of passages, short passages about your book, which is already out, and Matt's book is Uh, still under production. Um, And Matt says he's not sure why you wrote the book. And I also had a little bit, I felt a little bit puzzled by it um, because it does focus very much on your critiques of Hitchens, which is fine. But I think before we get into, if we get into any critiques or before we do, Maybe you could talk a little bit about what it is that attracts and enthuses you about Hitchens. What inspires you about his work? Yeah, uh, to be clear, the book is not already out. Uh, it's it's oh, coming out. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, yeah, I, no, I've read no it. problem. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you've read it. Matt's read it. Daniel's read it. But uh, but you're among the lucky few. Uh, yeah, it's it's coming out at the end of the month. Uh, which was as close as I could I could get my publisher to get to uh, the anniversary of his death when uh, uh, when this is coming out the ten year anniversary. Uh, so, yeah, I was reading Christopher Hitchens. Um, you know, I was a weird kid. I was reading him as a teenager in uh, in his Minority Report column for for the Nation. He was somebody who was who's definitely on my radar again uh, in the New Atheist period, so called uh, in. Uh, the two the two thousands uh, when uh, when I you know would would watch you know some of his his debates uh, with the the faithful uh, I, I would I would push back a, a little bit about the claim that the book very much focuses on the critique I think that that's there but I don't think it's the overwhelming focus at all uh, I I will note for example that the largest area of disagreement isn't even referenced until um, you know perhaps a third of the way into the book. Uh, that's the uh, that's that's the first time its its existence is even mentioned, uh, and um, and that it it doesn't come back to it in, until very close to to the end of the book, you know, which was a, a deliberate choice. Uh, so I, I think that why I wrote the book and and what I what I find good and and value about him are are related questions, but I also can't answer the question about why I wrote the book if I'm if I'm just talking about that. What I would say is that. Part of the fascination for of Hitchens for me uh, is that, from my perspective, he's a really complicated and interesting figure. In some ways, I'm a super fan, and in some ways, 
as you say, I emphatically disagree with important parts of what he was saying. Uh, not so much in the first half to three quarters of his career. You know, the 90s are kind of a transitional fossil, but uh, certainly in the, the final quarter. So I wanted to rehabilitate parts of his work that are often neglected on all sides because people who agree with it often uh, sort of revile him in ways that are suggested in the passage that Matt wrote, uh, that Matt read off. Um and uh, and and so aren't really interested in in the earlier stuff that you know that they you know they do concur with, and and some of the friends you know the sort of new friends from the last period, uh, you know weren't enthusiastic about at least some of what he was writing uh, earlier on. So I mean that's definitely part of the the motivation you know that you know the sort of legacy of, of the version of Hitchens that I think is most right that I think is sort of undervalued on on all sides. Uh, and and I also wanted to think critically, you know, about both what I agree with and what I disagree with in uh, in you know what he was saying in the last ten years of his life, you know, particularly about uh, religion, uh, and to and to think a, a little bit more analytically about the stuff that I most disagree with, you know, that is is all too often either defended uh, by those who are fervent enough fans uh, that they that they still believe that he was correct about his late life foreign policy positions uh, or uh, or reviled in a way that I find uh, simplistic and a little lazy, right? You know, I, I think, you know, by people who will say that, um, you know, oh, he just sold out, you know, he was an apostate or, you know, he was a just, it was just Islamophobia or he, you know, he just drank too much Johnny Walker Black and that, you know, and that somehow turned him into an Iraq's war supporter, which, you know, I've, I've, I've known too many uh, anti-imperialists who enjoyed, enjoyed booze to uh, to accept that one. Uh, and even though I very much identify with the, you know, the anti-war socialist left, which is what Hitchens identified with, you know, for, for most of his political career, uh, I think it's a huge mistake for, well, anybody, but particularly for people who I agree with, because those are the people I, I'm most bothered with to make this mistake, to just assume that our particular commitments are so universally correct that anyone who drifts away from them must have bad motives. I think that that's something that that makes us intellectually lazy. So, I mean, I, I, I guess I just wrap up by saying that, like, you know, one of the nicest blurbs that I got from the book was from Ed Buckner, who, you know, used to be the president of the American Atheists, who, who knew Hitchens a little bit in that capacity, uh, who said that people who think was Hitchens that Hitchens was perfect will be pissed by the book, right? They'll they'll be pissed off by it. Uh, people who think that he was nothing but a you know neocon warmonger scumbag will be pissed off by the book. And what he said, you know, he described as the rest of us who loved him but found him deeply flawed uh, will like it. And and I was really happy about that because that's exactly what I was going for. You know, I I think in some ways it's more. He's a much more interesting subject to write about and to try to kind of sort out my mixed feelings about than, than just writing about somebody who I either unequivocally admire or unequivocally detest. Yeah, I I, I, I mean, I can understand that certainly. And clearly, um, it wouldn't be worth examining the points of disagreement if you didn't think that he was a worthwhile figure to be fo- a worthwhile person to be focusing on. Um, but what do you think is his most, uh, just getting away from the criticism for the moment, what is the thing that really attracted you and inspired you and made you feel that he was somebody 
someone worth dedicating so much attention to that, as you say in the book, in the book itself, um, you and a friend of yours, when you heard he had died, although you were about to drive to the airport, you dropped what you were doing, stopped everything, poured out a couple of whiskeys, and it was a, a meaningful a meaningful loss to you. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's what I'm most interested in. What what was it about Hitch that really drew you? What do you think is unique to his writing? Yeah, well, I think the writing itself is, is much of what's unique, uh, which um, some people would regard as a superficial point of praise, but he certainly would not. Uh, he... Uh, uh, you know, he's, he says on many occasions that, you know, the style is the substance and, and that, you know, that kind of clear writing and clear thinking uh, was incredibly important to him. You know, so I, th- I think he was one of the best writers uh, who has been, you know, writing about, you know, sort of day to day political controversy uh, in, over the course of the decades that he uh, that he was writing, you know, from 1971 to 2011, when actually as he was dying, uh, you know, esophageal cancer, uh, he he was still. I mean, he was he was like in the literally in the middle of a piece uh, when uh, when he he finally passed away, which which I think tells you something about him. And he was a consistently thought provoking writer. That you know that in other words, when I thought that he was right about something, which I definitely did about many subjects, I thought that he was right and important on uh, free speech, some of which has already been alluded to. I think he was I think he was right about some sort of very core existential human things that occupied a lot of his attention in the last years, even though, you know, as you say, I do have criticisms, but uh, about how, you know, quite likely there's no God, there's no afterlife. Uh, this is what we have. And uh, and the sort of overwhelming task is is to try to help each other live flourishing lives. Uh, in in this world, and you know, and I know people who who write about politics and and talk about politics, and who I know in that capacity, some of whom may have been you know new atheism fans in the 2000s that are now a bit embarrassed about it, who will who will claim to find that subject a little boring. But I you know I, I talk about this in the book. I, I always kind of choke on that claim because I don't believe that you can be a human being and find that subject boring unless you're just so sure of yourself that it it the the topic just just doesn't doesn't engage you, uh, which I have a hard time imagining, you know. So so I think that as somebody who was who was writing about a lot of subjects, both political and philosophical, uh, that you know are sources of enduring fascination to me, uh, and was writing about them in a better way than nearly anybody else uh, who had a very rare ability to, you know, even write things I would really disagree with in ways that made me pause, made me think in ways that that I'm not uh, I'm not used to. And when he was writing about things that I I strongly agreed with, uh, both the stuff that he changed his mind on, but also things that were common threads throughout his his career, things like uh, the defense of of free speech, things like uh, the the deep opposition uh, to uh, to the death penalty, you know, which he saw as an assertion by states that they they owned their citizens. Uh, things um, things like his uh, things like his his defense of secular humanism. Um, that when he when he was right, you know, there's there's no one that I'd rather be be right. And when he was wrong, I think there's there's nobody that I'd rather productively disagree with. Thanks. Um- 
Matt, could could you talk to us a little bit about why you just what first attracted you to Hitchens, and why did you decide to write the particular book that you've written about him? Yeah, sure. So Hitchens to me has always been a sort of first principles thinker. Um, I think that's what makes his work so powerful. I think it's one of the reasons why it will end up persisting and continuing to inspire people well into the future. Um, A lot of the points in my book are focused around these sort of consistencies in in Hitchens's career. Um, Ben certainly mentioned a few of them, you know, his, his opposition to authoritarianism of all kinds, whether it's a celestial or or terrestrial, Um, his humanism, his um, commitment, absolute commitment to free speech, democracy, and really the, the values of the Enlightenment. Um, George Packer actually gave a great speech about Hitchens when he received the uh, Hitchens Prize, which is um, handed out every year by the Dennis and Victoria Ross Foundation, I believe. Um, I think Packer is a very worthy recipient of this prize, by the way. Um, he's he's a tremendous essayist who, who always confronts his own sort of prejudices and beliefs in a way that other writers don't. But he was talking about Hitchens and he said he, he's a pain eye thinker. You know, he's he, he belongs in the 17th and 18th century coffee houses. You know, he's a pamphleteer and, and a rabble rouser. And I, I, I loved that expression, painite, because it, it made me think of Hitchens's long and fraught relationship with the United States. Um, one of the reasons why I mentioned the fact that he was an internationalist who became a patriot is the fact that his internationalism was inextricably bound up with his love for and appreciation of America. Um, because to him, despite the fact that he was one of the most caustic, lacerating critics of U.S. foreign policy for decades, um, he recognized that the United States stood for something he, he referred to as the emancipating ideal, both in its founding documents and in its role in the world, ultimately. So I think Hitchens's understanding of the United States was one of the, the most formative elements of his political career. And it, it's he, he actually said as much in, in an interview in 2010. He said his reconsideration of America um, was the most important uh, political transition of his life because he always did appreciate the First Amendment, for example. He always appreciated the essential radicalism of the American experiment. Um, but I think after the Cold War came to an end and after he discovered that American power could actually be the guarantor of democratic rights and and human rights around the world, Um, first in the Balkans and and then, yes, in Afghanistan and Iraq, which we may get into, we may not. Um, This was was sort of his principles in practice at that point. And I think he was liberated as as a thinker and a writer after 1989. Um, That's an argument that his close friend Martin Amos made several times. He made it in Coba the Dread, a book that's very critical of Hitchens, but which I think gets him right on this essential question. Um, Was 1989 a a crucial hinge year for Hitchens? And yes, I I do believe it was. And, And one of the other reasons why it was so important for him beyond the fall of communism and his, his realization that just the commitment to 
good old democracy was probably the most radical and sustainable uh, political movement in the world was his confrontation uh, with the apologists for the fatwa against Salman Rushdie. Um, that was a moment when he discovered that the West wasn't quite as committed to the core uh, principles that that have built and shaped every last one of us as it, as it should be. Um, the apologies made for um, not necessarily the Ayatollah, but for the people who were taking to the streets and streets and screaming about a book they had not read and burning embassies and um, attempting to assassinate publishers and, and translators, the apologies made for those people were, A, very insulting to Muslims. Um, I'm so glad that Daniel mentioned that compilation of essays uh, for Rushdie, which is, is really one of the most beautiful affirmations of universal human rights, dignity, and values that you can find anywhere. Because in many cases, these are Iranians who, who are risking their lives um, by defending Rushdie and saying, you know, our, our Ayatollah, our grand theocrat has no right to issue a death warrant um, against a novelist. So Hitchens, this was this was the most foundational threat imaginable to free speech and, and all the values of the Enlightenment that he stood for. And he he fought as hard as anyone could could fight um, in defense of those values. Um, so, yeah, that that should give you some idea of what's always attracted me to him. And I, I think it's I think the fact that he's he really found his way back to his core principles in his last two decades. He, he wasn't as caught up in, in day-to-day politics as he was when he was obsessed with um, the Clinton administration, for instance, or when he was writing about Iran-Contra. As important as those issues were, um, it was nice to see Hitchens return to, to his most foundational values. Thanks, Matt. Daniel? Yeah, well, since Matt mentioned the For Rushdie book, I should say that... Uh, I've got it right in front of me right now. Um, it's quite hard to get hold of these days, um, but it is a wonderful book. It's uh, full of of interesting and uh, quite radical and often quite um, dangerous essays from people who really do know the meaning of of of, of oppression. Um, and I was lucky enough to get this book signed by Rushdie a couple of years ago, so I've got a signature in this book. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I do agree that that is uh, one of the foundational principles of of Hitchens. Uh, as as for my my personal relationship, uh, I think maybe I can claim uh, some uh, notability here by being uh, perhaps the only person who really kind of knew of Hitchens after he died. Uh, you know, before he died, he, you know, I'd I'd read. Richard Dawkins. Um, so I had some sort of, and you know, the sort of new atheism stuff. I had some kind of familiarity with with Hitchens from that milieu, uh, but I hadn't actually really read him or watched him or anything like that. And then when the news report came out uh, on December fifteenth, twenty eleven, uh, on Channel Four, as I remember, and the 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 section they did on Hitchens uh, is. Uh, available to watch on YouTube still, I think. Uh, for some reason, that really affected me, even though I hadn't really read this guy, didn't really know this guy very much. But just for some reason, it just I did feel a kind of loss as well. You know, I, I didn't. I was about fifteen, and I was a good boy, so I didn't uh, pour out a whiskey with any friends. Uh, 
but I did yeah there was something something there that I thought yeah this is really something of a loss uh to not just to the, the new atheism movement but just to public discourse in general and it was only after that in the years following that that I started to read his uh his books and essays in in any great depth and I think as with a lot of people um one starts out with a, a kind of uh a, a kind of almost worship of this really attractive figure this romantic figure of a hard drinking hard smoking um intellectual uh and i was i was seduced by that to a large extent uh but as the years passed i i think i can i think i gained a, a more sophisticated appreciation of him because though i still i still agree with him on most substantive issues i also see those deep flaws that uh that i think uh, ben would point out though perhaps not in quite the same way you know for example on on iraq where he uh insisted far beyond the point at which it could even be reasonably insisted uh that saddam hussein and al-qaeda were were in bed together or that uh saddam had wmds um and all that kind of thing uh you know i start to recognize some of those some of those flaws in his thinking and perhaps in some sense that was part of um a certain dogmatism because uh once he had made that argument he perhaps found it hard to to give up on it uh so i yeah i i came to to criticize him in those ways even as i did i think come to a more sophisticated appreciation of 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 his writings and opinions and ideas and would still say that I do largely agree with him beyond um, uh, beyond uh, the way that Ben does. Uh, you know, I, I, I would say that Afghanistan and Iraq, we can, we can argue about that if we want, but uh, I would say that probably he was essentially correct on those things. Um, even as I realised in some ways he was just awfully, awfully wrong on a good deal of the arguments that he made uh, for those positions. Um, and then there's there are a couple of other areas in which I think he got things wrong, you know, abortion. Uh, he wasn't, you know, pro-life or anything, but he was perhaps a bit too ready to to cede some ground to the uh, to to that to that side of the argument. Uh, he also uh, was somewhat snobbish about sci-fi. I think he wrote an essay uh, about uh, yeah <laughs> about uh, about JG Ballard because I think Martin Amos had convinced him to read some Ballard. Um, and in that essay, I remember uh, being pretty pissed off that he was uh, being really bitchy about uh, about the value of sci-fi as literature. Uh, so I think uh, it may not seem substantial, but I think that was a that was a pretty a pretty uh, flawed position uh, in terms of literature. Uh, yes, especially because, especially because, I mean, Hitchens was, um, you know, it's a subject that doesn't come up very much in either of the books that have been uh, written, but I mean, like Hitchens actually probably wrote as much about literature over the course of his career as, as he did, um, as he did about politics, or if not, you know, it was, it was certainly in the same, um, 
in the same league. You know, he, he wrote a remarkable amount of it. And like, you know, very late in life, like when he was already getting chemo, he would like chide reporters for not asking him questions about literature. Yeah, no, I yeah. think uh, when there was that volume that was uh, released, the quotable Hitchens, uh, which contained a lot of his uh, most uh, uh, notable zingers. Um, I think Amos wrote an introduction to that that the 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 Hitchens who focused on literature was uh, really unrepresented or underrepresented in that volume. I think that's true. I think I think ben, yeah, Ben, you say in your book that. Uh, you hope to see the uh, you hope to see somebody write one day at length about Hitchens, the the critic, the literary critic. Uh, and I can't I, I I very much agree with you on that. I think that's one of the aspects that gets most lost in these debates, and perhaps quite rightly so, because you know when we were talking about religion and we're talking about um, the war on terror and Iraq and Henry Kissinger, then. You know, these are these are pretty serious issues, though, uh, and quite immediate issues. Um, well, we Hitchens that aspect of his of his of his career either. He he did always say that uh, literature was a better guide to morality and serious political dispute and philosophical dispute than religion ever could be. So I wouldn't want to uh, divorce the two in a conversation about Hitchens uh, when he wrote about. Literature. He was very often um, writing about the political components of of both what he was reading and the authors who he was writing about. And when he wrote about politics, he often invoked literature. So I just thought that was worth mentioning. Mm. I think. Um, I mean, I thought that, that there was nothing uh, about which I disagreed with Hitchens. But now, as you were speaking, I just looked up his essay on. Uh, it's called the Catastrophist uh, for the Atlantic. Um, on the J.G. Ballard, and I think I found something I don't like about Hitchens. Here we go, I'm going to read this, uh, read a little <laughs> passage. Um, As one who has always disliked and distrusted so-called science fiction, the votaries of this cult disagreeing pointlessly about whether to refer to it as SF or sci-fi, <laughs> I was prepared to be unimpressed, even after Kingsley Amis praised Ballard as the most imaginative of H.G. Wells's successors. The natural universe is far too complex and frightening and impressive on its own to require the puerile add-ons of space aliens and super weapons. The interplanetary genre made even C.S. Lewis write more falsely than he normally did. Hearing me drone on in this vein about 30 years ago, Amos Fees who contributes a highly lucid introduction to this collection, wordlessly handed me The Drowned World, The Day of Forever, and for a shift in pace and rhythm, Crash. Any one of these would have done the trick. Um, yeah, I think it's quite disappointing for someone who felt that literature was a better guide to ethics than religion, that he wasn't a trek, uh, he wasn't a trekkie. It's kind of strange because, I mean, the, some of the great dystopian novels, I mean, 1984, of course, and We, which kind of prefigured 1984 in many ways, were sort of science fiction novels. I mean, in some ways, they, they were talking about fantastic technology and they were talking about a, a future universe in which these, these great capacities would be available to the state. And there, there's certainly a science fiction feel to those books. So I, I'm not sure how hard and fast we want to draw. I mean, that, I know people don't classify them as science fiction novels, but 
Well, they don't. You know, I, I think, they, I think they mostly don't classify them as science fiction novels now because they've they've sort of become part of the the literary canon. But I think even if you look at um, at like old like the covers for it just after it came out, you know, I think it was kind of. Uh, kind of, you know, like 1984 at least, you know, I think it was kind of sold a little bit more that way originally, and 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 it is hard to think. I mean, if you're, I mean, if you're just sort of trying to apply some sort of objective standards, what it is that would disqualify it and presumably we from counting as science fiction, other than like, you know, other than just sort of saying like this is too good or too classy, you know, or 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 something like that, right? I mean, because because it's certainly not that like. It's it's uh, it's dealing with um, you know that there's no element of allegory or you know that it's dealing with real world themes you know because I I think that tends to be um, you know that tends to be all over the place so so I don't know I I, w- I would just really briefly say on on what um, you know just connected the what Matt said in his book that I had actually forgotten about about being unclear about why I wrote mine and what. Iona said just now about how uh, this is, you know, the only subject where she may disagree with Hitchens. I think it is interesting, you know, the, the way we talk about agreeing with him or disagreeing with him, uh, because, of course, he held different positions in, in different parts of, of his career, you know, different different parts of his output say different things. And, of course, if, if the man were still with us, I understand what it means to say, you know, I agree with him or I disagree with him because that means the sort of Hitchens of the present. But... You know, now they're all Hitchens of the uh, of the past, and uh, and it doesn't strike me as obvious that somebody has more of a reason to to write about him if they are, you know, either Matt Johnson or uh, or Richard Seymour, right? You know, that that if they either think that, uh, you know, he sort of all, you know, he sort of always sucks. Uh, you know, as as Seymour, his least thoughtful, you know, sort of suggests, or that he. Um, or that he substantially got things right in the last period. Uh, because even apart from what you think about the rights and wrongs of those questions, uh, it, it seems to me that saying somebody that somebody was interested and insightful and important writer who um, who continued to have many of those qualities throughout his life, but who uh, but who you know spent was you know spent the bulk of his career being substantially right, and then became wrong, and there are interesting questions about why he was wrong. That doesn't that that doesn't sound to me like a less interesting story than how somebody ultimately became right. And, I mean, I've got to say, I mean, just my bias is that actually sounds like a a more interesting story, you know, because it's it's sort of a um, uh, a you know, there's an interesting and and um, and suggestive tragedy. Yeah, um, it's also true that some of his positions simply can't be reconciled with one another. I mean, you would have to instance the Gulf War versus the Iraq War. Um, and there are also some interesting tensions in Hitchens's career, which I, I had occasion to think about as I wrote the book. Uh, for example, he, he, he is, despises partition. I mean, whether it's Cyprus or uh, Ireland or India and Pakistan, he, he just he thinks it leads to more war. He thinks it exacerbates the the basest tribal instincts that human beings are capable of summoning. But yet, um, I, I do get the sense that you know he he would support a Kurdish referendum on autonomy. And there was one such referendum in 2017, and the Kurds voted you know 93 percent to to form their own state. 
And while Hitchens certainly um, thought it was admirable how the Kurds attempted to help rebuild Iraq um, after the invasion and after all they'd been through at the, at the hands of um, murderous lunatics in Baghdad, you know, he and he did think that the Kurds um, were, you know, committed to a federal and democratic Iraq. But had they voted to separate from the country and had they succeeded, which is very unlikely due to the pressure from regional powers that don't want to see uprisings and autonomy movements among their own Kurdish populations, it's also attributable to sort of the indifference of the United States to an autonomous Kurdistan. And it's it's certainly attributable to uh, the hostility felt from Baghdad toward uh, the idea of, of Kurdish independence. Um, but had they separated, you, you have to imagine that Hitchens would have said, well, they have every right to do so. And their their little democratic statelet in northern Iraq um, deserves the self-determination that any other uh, any other state has. So I just I always thought that was kind of an interesting tension in his work. Yeah, that is interesting. And and uh, yeah, I find that one really interesting also because I'm inclined to be sympathetic to uh, to both halves of it. But I do see your point. Um, can I I mean, I. Uh, I don't mean to take over the the role of Iona as host slash questioner, but uh, I do want to use the formulation. I'm happy for you to take over the role whenever you like. <laughs> yeah, I want to kind of ask about. I want to ask about the uh, to use the Ben's formulation in in his title. Um, I think you know this is ground that we've uh, partially covered already, but I think it's worthwhile to to uh, be you know, more concrete and direct about it. Um, so what did uh, Christopher Hitchens get right and what did he get wrong or how did he go wrong? Um, you know, in, 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 in a brief sentence or two, what, what, do, you, what do you guys think uh, on those questions? Well, I guess the, the second half of that would really be for, for me, right? Because I think for, for Matt, it would be, you know what did he get wrong and how did he go right? Uh, but um, but yeah, oh, man, it's so hard to do this in a sentence or two. But I will I will give it the old college try. Uh, I think I th- should take a dozen sentences. <laughs> well, maybe I'll maybe I'll I'll uh, I'll go go somewhere in between. Uh, yeah, I, I think that um, I think that there are things that he he got right throughout his career that he, he never stopped getting right, uh, which some of which have already been been addressed. So uh, I, I think from my perspective, I think a crucial thing he got right early in his career was summed up in the slogan of the little socialist group that he was part of in Oxford, right? Neither Washington nor Moscow, but international socialism. And, you know, long after he'd stopped being, you know, a Trotskyist and become a, you know, more moderate socialist, but still with lots of college Trotskyism swimming around in his uh, political bloodstream, I think he at least mostly retained the spirit of that quote. Uh, like, you know, you don't have to choose between being a Reagan apologist and a Brezhnev apologist. You can be both. You should be both. Uh, there's an appearance you could find on YouTube from when Reagan invaded Granada and Hitchens was, you know, condemning it. And callers kept, you know, saying, yeah, but, you know, the, the, the government we overthrew was so horrible. You know, they, they killed Maurice Bishop. You know, it was a dictatorship. And and he would say yes, that's all true. Uh, and and I admired Maurice Bishop. I had interviewed Maurice Bishop. Uh, but I still don't think the United States has a right to pick the the government of uh, of Granada. And, and so I think that 
I think early on, I think he made a very sharp distinction between democratic revolution from inside a society and um, and regime change uh, from from without. And I, I think that that was that was an important thing that he got right. Um, and you know, I, I think you know that the sort of dichotomies of of you know either you're not really against authoritarianism or you support getting rid of an authoritarian regime, even in the latter, you know, even in, in that ex- external way, uh, I, I think we're certainly not something he would have said in the 70s and 80s, or even really the 90s. Uh, so so I do think that later position was wrong. Uh, and I think that, um, and again, I think I think tragically wrong, because I think that the, the bad effects of those wars in the 2000s were much worse than the bad effects of the invasion of, of Granada. But um, I, I think in terms of how he got wrong, I mean, this this is one of the reasons that that I wanted to to write this book and to kind of sort it out and and you know to do the more nuanced take than what I thought was was already out there uh, because I've already indicated that I find I find a lot of the analysis of these that exist on the left really shallow and unconvincing, and and so I, I think the more the more interesting treatment has to do with um, what happened, I think, over the course of the 1990s. And, you know, there's a section in my book where I go through a lot of his debates and, you know, and I argue that you can kind of see this sort of happening a little bit at a time, you know, and some of the stuff that's happening in the uh, the 90s where, you know, his original confidence that, you know, that there, there, there could be, you know, internal revolutions in in some of these societies uh, was was waning, and uh, and I think that was very much linked to his declining faith in, in socialism, which he he says some very poignant things about in Hitch 22. He says that sometimes it felt like an amputated limb, sometimes it just felt like this you know heavy overcoat that it's left off. Uh, but but I think that you know he had that was a period where people. I've probably already taken at least a dozen sentences, so I'm going to try to stop it a couple. But uh, you know, I think I think that was a period where he, um, you know, where the sort of end of history atmosphere of the 1990s that this this pervasive feeling that the conflicts between big ideas about how to organize society that defined the 20th century had largely ended. I think really started to to get to him. I, I and and I think he you know he kind of admits in his 22 there was a point in the 90s where. You know, the only reason he was still, you know, when Charlie Rose asked him if he was still a socialist, you know, the only reason he was still saying yes, you know, is because he didn't want to give Charlie the satisfaction of uh, of, of saying no. And, and I think that I, I, I think that those are those are intimately related facts and in, in understanding his evolution, whether you think that he ended up in the right place or the wrong place. Um, yeah. So first of all, I think it was Brian Lamb. Oh, was it Brian Lamb? Okay. Yeah, I think we were talking about I just just want to give Brian Lamb his due. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, He actually dedicated uh, Thomas Jefferson, author of America, to Brian Lamb, who he describes as a great Virginian. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, as a a C-SPAN junkie from way back, you know, I think he's, the man is a tremendous American. (laughs) But anyway... So, yeah, um, in Seymour's book, he says, make no mistake about it. You know, this is a prosecution. I think what was the subtitle of that book? The Trial of Christopher Hitchens uh, Unhitched. Well, my book is certainly a defense of Hitchens. So, I mean, I can just get that out of the way right now. 
But um, just to ward off any potential charges of hagiography, I think there's actually quite a bit that Hitchens got wrong. I mean, first of all, there are all the, the uh, all the arguments on Iraq, which uh, Daniel actually touched upon. But, you know, I mean, he did insist that weapons of mass destruction would be found in the country. He said it was only a matter of time. That was nonsense. He insisted on connections between Saddam Hussein and, and al-Qaeda that simply did not exist. Um, and he held to those positions for far too long. And he would say things like, the only way to certify Iraq as disarmed was to invade the country, which makes a mockery of the entire UNSCOM inspections regime. I mean, it, it's just not a position that could sensibly be held, especially not for as long as he held it. And I think it undermined his much better arguments in favor of the war, and such as the fact that Saddam Hussein was the most monstrous tyrant perhaps on the planet at the time, um, his solidarity with the Kurds, his desire for a federal and democratic Iraq. All of those are good arguments as far as I'm concerned. But anyway, another another point on his interventionism in his final decade, I think he underestimated the extent to which um, the war in Iraq would undermine the sort of structure of international law that he thought needed to be cultivated and ultimately enforced. I mean, Iraq split NATO. Um, after um, NATO had invoked Article 5 after the invasion of Afghanistan, um, so it alienated our allies. It, it, it didn't actually stem from the resolutions that Hitchens would cite uh, supporting the war. Um, it, it was clear that those resolutions um, could only come into force if the Security Council authorized the war, which it did not. So I just think, you know, as, as terrible as the UN can be on human rights and as hypocritical as it can be, um, you know, just the fact that Russia and, and China have permanent veto power is an indictment in and of itself. Uh, I do think that you have to start somewhere. And if you're going to flagrantly violate international law to launch a war, you need to acknowledge that there's a cost to that. And I don't think just, you know, sneering at the United Nations is, is quite good enough. So that's another criticism I have of him. And then one more. I'm actually glad you mentioned the end of history. Hitchens always got the end of history wrong. Always. He, I don't think he ever actually read the book. Uh, he probably read the original essay, maybe right after it came out. But uh, Fukuyama never argued that events would simply stop happening, that wars would stop being launched, massacres would stop being perpetrated. And Hitchens would often present the Gulf War and um, the... So Lebanon Milosevic's uh, siege of, of Sarajevo as evidence that history had not, in fact, ended. Well, that just that just wasn't the argument. The argument was that liberal capitalist democracy was the most sustainable um, political and economic system. And that would ultimately bear out. So there isn't some like termination period on the end of history thesis. It's not like Fukuyama said by 2023, the whole world will be democratic. I mean, that's just not that's not how his mind worked. And it, I do think it misstated the argument. And I thought it was particularly ironic for Hitchens to be so critical of Fukuyama because I think he was ultimately arguing the same thing. I mean, he he believed that liberal democracy was the most sustainable and just political system. And he also recognized that the international socialist movement simply was not going to revive. I don't think people realize this, but even after September 11th, Hitchens actually said in, in an interview, I believe it was in Reason magazine, that he still would prefer socialism as um, a method of economic organization, but it's just simply that it wasn't politically viable anymore. 
And uh, you mentioned this in your book, Ben, but I do have to wonder what he would have said about the rise of of Corbyn and Sanders and these sort of unapologetic uh, socialists and and mainstream politics today. I mean, he would have been interested for sure. He would have despised Corbyn, I can almost assert. Of course, I don't want to speak for the dead, but, but, you know, and he he would have been much more interested. Almost certainly true. Yeah. And then but but Sanders is Sanders is different. Um, and I actually think that, that their effects, the respective effects, um, attest to the essential difference between the two of them. Sanders is a much more popular person. Corbyn essentially torpedoed the Labour Party. So those are some criticisms of Hitchens, but I, I feel like I've gone on for t- too long. So if you if you want to know what I think about what he got right, we can certainly get to it. <laughs> um, well, yes, know, let's. Yeah. And I have something to contribute on that as well. On what he got right, uh, Daniel. Sorry, you you I interrupted you. Uh, no, sorry about. I mean, uh, please go on because I was just going to say that one of the things that I found most interesting about uh, Matt's book was the argument um, that even as Hitchens's uh, support for the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War, uh, well, more the Iraq War, uh, was based on this this ideal of the the liberal international order of promoting democracy and, and stopping genocide and, and human rights and all the rest of it um, by so forcefully arguing for the Iraq intervention, he essentially undermined in the long term um, the global or international consensus on that. Um, and I just, I just find that interesting as a, as a, you know, as a kind of short term, okay, we're going to go into Iraq, we're going to go into Iraq, but uh, in the long term, you know, where does that leave uh, Syria or Libya? Uh, you know, it kind of does undermine in the long term the whole idea on which he based interventionism. And perhaps that can be justified on the basis that Iraq simply was too big a case to let go. You know, we can just we can just uh, forego uh, overthrowing Saddam Hussein. And that certainly would have been his argument. Um, but to the extent that that completely undermined f- further interventions, um, you know, it just, yeah, just kind of. Um, which was uh, which was actually one of uh, Peter Hitchens's arguments in the um, 2008 debate that they had about, well, you know, half of the debate was about Iraq, half of it was about God. Uh, and so which 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 uh, for. You know, I, I, you know, I think, uh, you know, as you, as you'd imagine, I've, I've mixed loyalties uh, about, you know, about, about my rooting interest in that debate. But in the, uh, in the Iraq part, uh, that was one of, uh, that was one of Hitch, of Peter Hitchens's, uh, his, his ultra conservative brothers' uh, arguments against the invasion of Iraq, you know, which of course is, is one of the ones I pointed out in the book, right? It's sort of very different from, uh, from, from standard left arguments against it, that, you know, it sort of make it too difficult to, you know, to, to intervene elsewhere in the future. Yeah. But I think, um, yeah, and no, I think, I think he- Peters, I mean, I, I don't want to use the first names, but it's kind of necessary here. I think Peter's point there was that not that it would make it harder to intervene um, on the behalf of of human rights, so much as it would just undo the uh, undo the prestige of uh, the West. Whereas Christopher's point, I think, or not his point, but uh, Matt's point, would be that um, you know this intervention in particular 
undermined the chance to intervene on the right side uh, of these conflicts. Whereas I think Peter's point is much more uh, right wing in the sense that it's much more about the not the not how good it will be for uh, people in faraway countries of whom we know little, but uh, how good it will be for uh, the British armed forces or the American armed forces or or what have you. I think there's yeah there's an important distinction to be made there. I believe. I was actually. I know what I know what uh, Ben is referring to. I remember it was in Peter's opening remarks. He did actually say that this will Ill- illegitimize future interventions, which is a strange point for him because he certainly isn't a liberal interventionist. I mean, the only conditions under which Peter Hitchens thinks uh, the West should get involved in other countries' affairs are in cases of self-defense. You know, I mean, it, I, I just think he has a very narrowly prescribed. Uh, conception of interventionism. So I, I I do think it's funny that he even decided to include that as one of his arguments, but he did say it. Yes, yeah, so I don't I don't think in general that he would um, support intervention. Anyway, so, no, cert, cert, certainly not. I mean, although that's also something that's kind of funny about the the two of them, right? That that they sort of. Um, I mean, I don't think they exactly switch positions, you know, because because I think that uh, I, I think the difference is more complicated than that. But they, but that uh, you know, Peter went from being a pretty ardent cold warrior uh, to to being very anti-intervention, and I think Iraq uh, was a hinge point in that transition. Uh, you know, in his like general view about the use of you know British and American military force, and whereas, of course. Um, Christopher went from being, you know, generally very anti-intervention to, you know, to having, you know, the the positions we've been talking about. So one criticism I have of Christopher Hitchens, which actually sort of bleeds into um, something I admire about him, is the fact that I think he, I think he gave short shrift to the uh, the philosophers that have become known as the new philosophers in France. I, I mentioned them briefly in my opening remarks, um, but he, <laughs> I think he, uh, he, he cited the new philosophers in a New York Times article once, and he said, this is the term we give to people who, um, who dis- discovered Stalinism in the 1980s or something. <laughs> like they, they became anti-communist and he was just dismissing them as you know, people who were either a a little late to the party, or b saying something that was close to a truism. You know, so he was very critical of them. But I actually think, in many ways, um, figures like Andre Glucksmann, um, you know, Pascal Bruckner, sort of prefigured some of the positions that Hitchens would find himself um, adopting in the 1990s. Bernard Kouchner is another that comes to mind, but he wasn't one of the new philosophers. He was. He was uh, active in government, and he, he um, founded Doctors Without Borders. But anyway, uh, going into the 90s, uh, some of the arguments that these guys were making about interventionism and state sovereignty were steadily gaining traction around the world. Um, they, they were being codified in UN resolutions. Um, Kofi Annan actually said that the right to intervene is, is a live issue. And we shouldn't consider state sovereignty inviolate in cases of of massacre and and repression if the scale is large enough and the threat is deep enough. So this is something that I believe the world was sort of coming around to after the Cold War. And in 19, 
1999, uh, Tony Blair gave a speech in Chicago where he sort of outlined what he defined as a new doctrine of international community, which called upon states to act in, in the event of massacres like the, the killings in Bosnia and in the event of mass deportations like the ones that took place in Kosovo. So those things were happening. And then uh, Blair sort of put his doctrine into practice, both in Kosovo and Sierra Leone, where British troops um, intervened to prevent paramilitary forces that were uh, backed by uh, Charles Taylor from killing a lot of people. And I think Blair sort of saw that as a template for future interventions. And then came Afghanistan and then came Iraq. And I, I think that this sort of Emerging consensus. I mean, Daniel used the word consensus earlier. I'm, I'm not sure if I'd put it that way. These these were deeply, deeply controversial ideas. The concept of re responsibility to protect, for example, is considered sort of window dressing for a new imperialism by some on the left. Um, but these ideas were in formation, and then Iraq hop happened, and he certainly can't get a fair hearing for the interventionist argument these days. So that's. I think Hitchens was right about interventionism, but I. Again, I do think he underestimated the extent to which uh, Iraq could set that project back. Um, yeah, um, I just realized that uh, a, a few moments ago I did interrupt Iona. Um, Iona wanted to uh, to ask something. So, yeah, I think I uh, um, we might not want to dwell too much sp specifically on Iraq. Otherwise, we, we may start replaying the argument we had before about the Iraq intervention itself rather than Hitchens. And um, I, of course, would tend to agree with um, with Matt, or rather I agree with Ben's thesis in reverse, i.e. I think that Hitchens was wrong about some things in his earlier life and that his views matured uh, as, and became more, more ethically consistent as he got uh, further along in his career as he kind of um, abandoned the idea of um, that the most important thing was a specific ideological affiliation with the left. Um, and I'm very much a leftist, and I think that we should, we, we should uh, incorporate socialist values into our democracies as far as is practicable, which is probably as far as kind of Bernie Sanders and no further. Um, so... Uh, I would absolutely have loved to have seen Bernie in the White House, but I definitely um, wouldn't support, and I wouldn't support anyone further left than that, economically left, because I just think it's um, unfeasible. And once you get into the territory of communism, it's just incompatible with human nature. And um, and it's a utopian way of thinking, and utopianism is an incredibly destructive intellectual force. But I think that for me personally, the main values are in his consistently universal liberal humanist values. And they were universal in that Hitchens had no moral double standards. Um, he felt that everybody from every culture, from every race, quote unquote, um, and he rubbishes the idea of race several times in his in his writings, and I think he was right to do so. From every race, nation, ethnicity, religious background, culture, etc., um, has the same 
the same intrinsic human rights, the same intrinsic human dignity, and should also be held to the same standards, and um, that the same morals apply across the board. There's no moral relativism in in Hitchens, and I'm um, and I I really value that in him. So that's that's one thing that is really important to me, and. Um, the other thing is that he's he's never orientalizing or condescending or um and the other thing is the absolute resistance to authoritarianism that he rejects all claims of one person to have authority over another uh that claims that aren't based on a democratic agreement and a form of democratic representation and that that rejection of authoritarianism ex- is absolutely consistent extends to he rejects religion because it's an authoritarian system you must obey unquestioningly he rejects censorship and he is in favor of free speech because censorship implies that somebody else should be allowed to decide for you what you can say and listen to what you can um write and read and any such um any kind of power or re- power over other people or restrictions of of human freedom have to be absolutely and clearly justified so i find that both both those that combination very powerful and i think he's one of the most consistent thinkers in that in that way and i also quite enjoy his trollish sort of humor more humorous <laughs> pieces like why women aren't funny um i like the fact that he makes no concessions at any time to political correctness but he's not a contrarian he's he's there he's not um he is not simply opposing the status quo for the sake of it but he is just absolutely uncowed by the idea of what might be the right thing to say or what people might think or what you should be saying um there's there's he's against censorship and he's also resilient personally resilient against self-censorship well i think um yes. this this uh kind of brings us on to on to religion to a large extent yeah um, I, I think i mean for me um one of the one of the 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 most consistent things about hitchens was that you know in 1989 he was talking about the the sort of the, the civil war within islam between uh you know conservatives and fundamentalists uh versus uh liberals and secularists and reformers um and even after 911 uh even as he became really militantly well literally militantly against against uh, islamism and jihadism uh you know his his support was for uh people like the kurds people like the women of iran uh and afghanistan who you know wanted to who wanted to fight and and for democracy and for freedom and those, I mean that remain that's one of the, to me at least one of the the most important consistencies in his thought, was that he never gave in to that um, relativism which stated that okay actually you know let's let's not criticise um, 
these cultural or religious practices or beliefs, uh, you know, let's actually support the people who are fighting against them, because the first people who suffer under these beliefs are, as it happens, uh, Muslims themselves. Uh, and the first people to fight against these beliefs are, as it happens, Muslims themselves. Um, and I think that that's probably one of, well, not probably, that is one of the main uh, the main fights uh, that we face today is to defend those um, radicals and revolutionaries uh, against uh, the authoritarian religious bigots who would keep them down and who would like to impose their uh, view of the world on the rest of us as well. Uh, I think uh, not to not to advertise Ario magazine too much, uh, but uh, Khadija Khan's um, recent columns in Ario are a pretty strong uh, vindication of this. Uh, you know where she argues that uh, the the hijab, for example, is not a neutral item of clothing, but actually um, uh, a symbol uh, of of gender apartheid and oppression that many women across the world are fighting and, and in some cases dying um, uh, to, to, to overcome. Uh, and the same with the word Islamophobia, which, as Khadija says, is a weasel word. It's just a, it's just a non-concept. Yes, there is such a thing as anti-Muslim bigotry, uh, but Islamophobia as a word, as a concept, is something that's used to, uh, to completely shut down um, criticism of Islam and specifically criticism of Islam by uh, Muslims. Uh, there, <laughs> there are plenty of Muslims who, who, would, who would criticize a lot of these ideas and practices but are shut down because the Islamophobia term is used by uh, the, the very worst uh, people in that community, the most conservative imams uh, who are always men um, and I think that that civil war within Islam is still, as Rushdie and Hitchens um, and Namazi and Hirsi Ali from various different positions on the political spectrum realised, uh, one of the most important fights that we could be having. And, uh, you know, I think that was one of the most admirable and consistent things about Hitchens was that he supported uh, the people who are fighting for freedom in, in that battle. Yeah, Um I mean, I would put it. I would think about it a little bit differently. I, I, I don't. I mean, I, I don't think that it's that. You know, there's no such thing as Islamophobia. That there aren't plenty of uses of it that that accurately identify a real phenomenon. Uh, I just think that it's also abused. I mean, a, a analogy uh, that that I would use is that you know, anti-Semitism is all too real, but it's also. Um, it's you know, but but spurious accusations of anti-Semitism are are often used, you know, to to shut down sort of you know legitimate criticism of Israeli oppression of the the Palestinians, you know, in the same way that conservative imams you know might might misuse the uh, the charge of Islamophobia, you know, which would actually uh, at least the anti you know and, and including including misusing it against Jews uh, who are, are critical of Zionism or Israel, you know, that, uh, you know, accused of being, you know, anti-Semitically, you know, self-hating, uh, which uh, which is actually a uh, an area where at least the anti-Semitism half of that, where where Hitchens would, would agree even in uh, the last years of his life. You know, there's a really interesting clip uh, 
you know, of uh, that you can find on C-SPAN of um, of Hitchens and Andrew Sullivan uh, in 2002, and they're both advocating the war in Iraq. Uh, but um, you know, but a, a caller at one point asks, "Well, what about the uh, what about all the you know the UN resolutions Israel has flouted? You know, do, do, don't you think?" The United States sort of backing that makes them lose credibility for, you know, for for calling for Saddam Hussein to be punished for, you know, the resolutions he's, he's flouted. And, and even in 2002, Hitchens just says, yeah, you're right. And then he proceeds to have a pretty nasty <laughs> argument for about 20 minutes, you know, I think uh, with maybe it wasn't that long, but with uh, with Andrew Sullivan uh, about whether you know, Palestinian resistance is the, uh, you know, it is, is morally equivalent to Al-Qaeda. Uh, and, and you know, Hitchens, uh, both before and after finding out that he was Jewish, according to Jewish law, was, I think, rightly contemptuous of um, of the uh, of of you of like those sorts of accusations of of anti-Semitism. Now, I, I would I, I do I do I do certainly agree on moral relativism and um, I, I would uh, I'll, I'll just lay a quick card on the table and, and say that I, I definitely am somebody who thinks, uh, with regard to Iota's last comment, that, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders would be a nice start, uh, you know, but is, is certainly not where I, I, would, I would end up, although I do I do find the, uh, the fee, I do take the feasibility worries uh, seriously. That's actually a, a book that I'm under contract for right now at Versa with uh, Bhaskar Sankara, an Australian economist named Mike Beggs, is, is sort of an attempt to address people with exactly the uh, the combination of views that Iona just advocated. But uh, we're supposed to talk about Hitchens, and I know you're trying to transition to religion. Um, yeah, on yes, the I just, religion front. Sorry, I, I, don't, I don't mean to butt in, Matt. I just want to mention that I do completely agree with uh, with you, Ben, on the use and abuse of of these ter- terms, whether it's anti-Semitism or Islamophobia. But you know, Islamophobia, as far as I'm aware, is a much more recent term and is almost exclusively used in really mendacious ways, which is why I would prefer, which why I prefer the term anti-Muslim bigotry, which is a lot less um, equivocal than Islamophobia and is a lot more narrowly um, um, uh, circumscribed on on you know genuine bigotry. But Islamophobia as a term. Um, and this is a whole other debate, just to me, is a complete uh, distraction from all of the real issues. It's probably uh, but I do, used, I do agree with you on, on the abuse of these terms. It's probably uh, used by um, well-meaning liberals who don't really understand the baggage and understand how it's been used in manipulative ways. I do think it's also suggestive that Islamophobia, it's it suggests that criticism of Islam is somehow bigoted or prejudiced. I mean, it's it, when when you hear anti-Semitism or racism. I mean, these these are terms that refer to bigotry with regard to immutable characteristics, whereas Islamophobia refers to um, attacks on a faith, a, a set of doctrines and ideas. But anyway, um, I think the point that Ben made about that exchange with Andrew Sullivan captures something really important about Hitchens. Um, and I, I would just ask anybody to measure his record on Israel-Palestine against, say, Jeremy Corbyn's. I mean, Hitchens was deeply critical of Israel until the day he died. Um, he was a lifelong anti-Zionist, which is a separate and distinct issue from uh, questioning Israel's right to exist, which, of course, Hitchens never did. 
but he didn't think that uh, a state that was originally founded on a religious distinction. And I understand that in the founding of Israel, um, it was it was a, a secular project for many Jews. I understand the secular components of it, but of course, there's a strong religion religious component as well that can't be ignored. But anyway, he was always critical of Israel, but at the same time, he never would have dreamed of making comments like Jeremy Corbyn did when he described his friends in Hamas and Hezbollah and said, um, you know, these these are organizations that are dedicated to securing peace and justice in the entire region. I mean, that is just a maddeningly nonsensical and frankly sinister thing to say. And Hitchens never would have fallen into that trap. I mean, he he would he recognized that what he described as the d- descent of um, Palestinian nationalism into the theocratic and thanatocratic hell of Hamas was a disaster. I mean, these are not organizations we should be celebrating, you know, as the sharp end of the spear against imperialism. They're, they're grotesque, theocratic monstrosities. And Hitchens just, he had the moral clarity to always recognize that. Apparently, Jeremy Corbyn does not. I think the left is suffering for it. Yes, I mean, I, I think, um, I mean, we don't want to get into a bitch face about Jeremy Corbyn. Um, yeah, I was just going to say, I'll, I'll, uh, I'm, I'm definitely, I definitely have far more positive feelings about Jeremy Corbyn than I'm guessing anybody else on the uh, the call, but we should probably focus on Hitchens for the... Well, very, I, just, I do, I, I, in any case, to I mean, be fair, I, I do to... think that was an important point about Hitchens' politics. I mean, it's a, it's a core reason why... I value his brand of left-wing thought, which was uncompromising with regard to Israel and the the treatment of of the Palestinians, and yet unwilling to capitulate to authoritarianism. I mean, I think it's a point worth making about Hitchens. Well, again, I, I think that the I, I agree that you should be uh, that the both of the positions that you just attributed to Hitchens are positions that are worth having in terms of you know analysis of of Jeremy Corbyn and what's good and bad about him and what ultimate point you know he's making in various you know various comments and how we evaluate politicians you know I I think any of that would would get us you know would 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 get us far. Um, Far off track, I should say for the listeners. We, uh, you know, we did a dry run of this, uh, where we ended up uh, arguing about such issues for a very long time and not really talking about uh, very much Hitchens. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, do we do we want to turn to to his uh, to his sort of late in life focus on religion? Yeah, yeah, we should. Uh, yeah, that was yeah. I mean, that was uh, kind of what I was driving at. Um, 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 no, I was oh, going to offer an opinion on, on Palestine, Israel, and, and Hitchens' views on that, but I won't. In the name of of uh, of of trying to trying to move well, on, this, I, I appreciate the, that. Um, I appreciate that Ben brought it up. I mean, I, I think you, Ben, I, I think you just made a perfectly good point about that exchange with Sullivan. I think it's a reminder that even the post 9/11 Hitchens um, retained some of these left wing convictions, and, and on Israel Palestine, I think those convictions were evident. So I mean, I, I think was, it was a good point. Always, Involved or like in favor of, I think the um, the secular and democratic um, Palestinian um, opposition to to Israeli imperialism, uh, and I think he saw the Hamas and uh, you know as a as a as a degeneration of that struggle. Um, whereas he would always say support the the democrats and the secularists um, over these you know really genuinely anti-Semitic and genocidal. Um, militants, um, uh, but again, again, we're, we're getting dry, 
getting drawn into that. Um, uh, that whole yeah, may- but it does relate to the religion debate because one of his points would have been that the Israel, uh, the Israel-Palestine issue would or was uh, solvable to an extent until religious zealots, um, whether Jewish or Muslim, uh, you know, stuck their oar in and essentially made it completely um, impossible to to have peace. Because once, even if you have a, you know, two people who are who are really opposed to each other, uh, once once they both think that God is on their side and that this land is theirs by divine uh, command, then that that problem becomes almost completely unsolvable. Uh, So that's the link to religion. I think that was one of his main critiques of religion, was that it essentially made everything worse that it came into contact with, whether it was Northern Ireland uh, or Palestine, Israel, or Iraq, uh, or Afghanistan, wherever, or India. their religion was this, you know, real force for an exacerbated tribalism, and that once it was introduced, it would just uh, completely wreck all chances of. Uh, yeah, I do think this this sort of builds on something that uh, Ben said a second ago about the ways in which the term Islamophobia can be instrumentalized um, by the right, and the ways in which Islam in general is used as this cudgel. Um, I, Donald Trump is notorious for uh, demanding um, a, a blanket Muslim ban during the campaign in, in 2016 and for, for declaring that he, he thought mosques should be surveilled in the United States and for saying he saw Muslims celebrating on September 11th, just the, the most grotesque, xenophobic bigotry you could imagine emanating from a person who would eventually occupy the highest office in the land. Um, and I, I think Hitchens saw this coming. He, he recognized the ways in which populist right-wing movements in Europe were using um, fear of Islam and fear of immigration uh, to, to seize power. And he, he actually um, saw the phenomenon in nascent form in the United States. He saw it in Glenn Beck's fevered conspiracy theories and the idea that Obama wasn't actually an American. You know, Hitchens, he said he would be shocked if, if the phenomenon of, of resurgent right-wing populism, which he saw in Europe before he died, and he died in December 2011, would make its way to the United States. And I, I think he was prescient about that. Yeah, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. Um, you know, spent a fair amount of time thinking about what sort of positions he, Hitchens would have taken if he had been cancer in 2011 and survived, you know, even another five or six years, um, much less to the present day. And some of those ambiguities, you know, we were talking about a little bit earlier, right? Like, I, I have no idea, you know, what he would have thought, for example, you know, I'm, I'm fairly confident that, you know, that, that that he would have had nothing good to say about Corbyn. I know, you know, it's possible he would have supported Sanders, especially when Henry Kissinger became an issue in that, that primary campaign. Um, but, you know, one thing, you know, it's, it's, it's possible that he would have, you know, sort of recovered his his old naturism, you know, about electoral politics when two people he hated that much were running against each other in 2016. And it's possible that he would have sucked it up and supported Hillary Clinton despite his deep hatred of her. Uh, but one thing I think that we can say with absolute confidence is that he would have, you know, he never, there's no version of Hitchens that would have supported Donald Trump. Um, that, you know, the, the two things I can find that Hitchens 
uh, said about Trump, um, you know, were that, uh, you know, there's there's this sort of offhand comment on C-SPAN about how the only thing impressive about Trump is that he could cover 90% of his skull with 10% of his hair. But the uh, the more substantive one is in 2000 when Trump was a, um, you know, was floating, you know, running for the Reform Party nomination, which is something that blows my mind every time I think about it, that the guy who's president of the United States for the last four years was also ran for the Reform Party nomination in 2000. And in that context, Hitchens described him as a nutball, narcissistic tycoon. But even beyond his loathing of the man personally, I, I, I think that everything about Trumpism uh, you know, he he would have he would have hated that. Uh, you know, I I think the open, um, you know, very close to just completely open uh, racial and sectarian uh, bigotry. Uh, I, I I think I think he would have had a very strong reaction to. Uh, I think that, you know, assuming that all of his foreign policy positions stayed the same. But even if we don't make that, whether we assume that or not, I think that the uh, I think that Trump's actual rehabilitation of 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 Lindbergh's America First slogan uh, would would have just been something he would have had an extreme visceral reaction to. You know that that struggle against um, you know fascism in in the 1940s was something that was a uh, and sort of appealing to the appealing to that. That precedent, you know, was something that he he uh, was a common thread in various phases of 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 his life, and so you know, so that sort of Neo Lindberghism he would have hated. Uh, just just the fact that that Trump was 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 just so aggressively and and proudly dumb, you know, I I, I think he, I, I I think he would have hated, right? I mean, I think I think just on a visceral level, you know, that that would have uh, that would have really bothered him, you know. So I think I can imagine any number of positions that he might have taken that, you know, would be consistent with some threat or another of, of his views uh, during the Trump years. But, you know, support for Trump himself is certainly not one of them. Yeah, no, and I, I think, think you're uh, exactly right. If, if you can say anything about about what he would have thought about Trump, um, whether you agree with, with Hitchens on, on all these issues or not, was that uh, Trump was, apart from the odd missile strike, uh, not... Uh, particularly in interventionist, uh, whereas Hitchens would have been appalled by by the deal with the Taliban, uh, by the withdrawal of troops uh, from Syria, from northeast Syria, who were defending and assisting the Kurds. Uh, I think those alone would have been enough to uh, uh, to you know to, to show that Hitchens would uh, would not have been a supporter of uh, Donald Trump. They're just yeah. even even by even by whether it's pre two thousand one or post two thousand one, that just yeah, there's just no version of Hitchens that would have been reconciled to Trump either as a person or in terms of policy or politics. I, I do think that that term uh, Ben just used, neo Lindberghism, captures the the issue perfectly. Um, I mean, Hitchens actually wrote a fair bit about Pat Buchanan for whatever reason. They would occasionally have collisions on cable TV. He reviewed several of his books. And Buchanan actually ran under the slogan, America first. And he just represents the the form of, you know, isolationist xenophobia that, that Hitchens always despised and seen it, seen it find its way to the White House almost certainly would have horrified him. So I, I think if you and if you want to see what Hitchens would have thought about Trump, I mean, you can you can read what he wrote about right wing nationalists and populists like Buchanan. You can even even in some of what he wrote about Sarah Palin, 
you can see what he thought about the because I, I believe uh, George Packer described her as John the Baptist to the coming of Trump, and I, I think he's probably right about that. So anyway, yeah, he he left a, a pretty obvious trail of breadcrumbs to follow. So yeah, I mean, I think that the you know I I think that in a lot of in a lot of ways Trump was less anti-interventionist than than he sort of advertised initially. If if you sort of start scrutinizing his um, his his record. Uh, but I, I also think that the fact that he he had um, you know that he used the the rhetoric of the of the flavor of interventionism that Hitchens, of anti-interventionism that Hitchens most hated that like if anything you know that was kind of how he would like assail people who were you know leftists or liberals you know who who disagreed with his foreign policy positions is by accusing you know uh, like as by saying no 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 this is really a right wing position and then sort of bringing up people who uh, said things like this. Uh, yeah, I, I think that I think that regardless, I think at every phase of his career, um, you know, he he would have uh, he would have disliked Trump. I think I think the only I think the only interesting question is actually what kind of non-Trumpist position you know he would have had in the sort of political landscape of those years, and that's much harder to predict with any confidence. Yeah, I I just want to interject to um, read a couple of quotations here. Um, this is Hitchens on Glenn Beck. Uh, in December of 2010, Beck, he writes, is canalizing old racist and clerical toxic waste material that a healthy society had mostly flushed out of its system more than a generation ago and injecting it right back in again. Um, And he says, um, in a rather curious and confused way, some white people are starting almost to think like a minority, even a persecuted one. And he says that the overall effect was large, vague, moist and undirected, the water world of white self-pity. And uh, he says elsewhere that that um, um, the right are cashing in on people's anxieties and trying to uh, whip them up into a pitch of kind of hysteria and fervor um, with allegations like the idea that the press that the president is not really American or that the president is a secret Muslim and the, and of course um, Trump was the was the, the the main proponent of the birtherism movement that he's alluding to there so I think yeah. we can agree he it's unlikely he would have been a fan you know I don't think he would have been a James Lindsay fanboy. He he. Uh, what form the opposition would have taken? I mean, he was certainly against anti-identity politics extremely strongly, and I think that that would not have changed. So I don't think he would have been in any sense woke, but he definitely wouldn't have been a MAGA head either. Yeah, and and I think the the James Lindsay thing is apt too because um, even though I, I I don't think he would have had any position in the sort of culture wars of the, um, you know, of 2021, you know, if he was still alive now, that uh, that could be mistaken for for woke. I, I think he would have been canceled on numerous occasions and sometimes maybe for for things that I thought were bad, but often for things that were, were silly. Uh, but I think that there is a good chance that he would have been very critical of, of the Lindsay stuff. I mean, not just the sort of like... Um, extremely strange conspiracy theories and and the support for Trump of course but uh but also uh but also the the support for things like like laws about uh against teaching 
you know, critical race theory or or anything that is seen as flying too close to the side of critical race theory, uh, because as has been alluded to, you know, he was he was very critical of of what he saw as white self pity. Uh, there's actually a debate that he did after, you know, this is this is post 9/11 Hitchens, um, you know, supporting uh, reparations, um, and uh, you know, which which I'm actually a little bit you know critical of from a uh, from an Adolf Reedish sort of perspective, but um, but in that in that debate, you know, he's he's very eloquent about you know about white white self pity there, and also because as has been alluded to many times in this conversation. Uh, if he cared about anything, it was it was free speech and open discussion of controversial ideas. And so I, th- I think um, I think laws uh, to uh, you know laws basically mandating that 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 people be fired if they say anything that could be interpreted as as uh, as saying that you know America is racist or you know any anything that could be interpreted as as you know support for you know. For for critical race theory or socialism or you know anything like this, like some of these some of these Lindsay supported laws, I I think it would have really gone against the grain for him, right? Like one of my favorite, um, you know, one of my favorite moments of very late Hitchens is a debate that he did at a university in Canada uh, on free speech, uh, where he he starts out by by you know with Hitchens panache saying fire. And then you know, talking about the phrase "shouting fire" to the crowded theater, and and reminding people that it was uh, that the context of that court decision was about upholding the convictions of Yiddish-speaking socialists, you know, uh, who were uh, distributing literature opposed to Wilson's uh, intervention in World War One in the draft. And he points out that, of course, the crucial question here is: Were they crowded, you know, falsely shouting fire to crowded theater, or was there a very real fire that you know that they were correctly warning about? And the crucial question is who decides, you know, which is is just such a nicely, perfectly put way of upholding, you know, one of the the key values here. And so I I think that the idea of, of like empowering state bureaucrats to sort of peer into history classrooms and 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 see if the correct ideological line is being being upheld upheld I I have a hard time seeing him not being just sort of viscerally revolted by. Yeah, as we approach the end here, it it, it might be good to summarize um, just why Hitchens's brand of left wing politics would have resonated today and and why he wouldn't have made the mistake of confusing support for Trump or support for those laws you mentioned, Ben, um, as support for the, the principles of universalism that he observed throughout his life. Um, I mean, it, when he when he discussed the American experiment, for lack of a better term, in, in his book about Thomas Jefferson, he, he just confronted the horrors of the past unflinchingly, always. You know, and, and I just I just think he he as you mentioned, he he argued in favor of reparations and that was a post 9-11 debate. And it, he, he recognized the, the the towering injustice of slavery and of Jim Crow um, will remain with us for for many decades, perhaps centuries to come. And I think this is something that gives him this sort of uh, revolutionary authenticity, you know, when he makes his arguments in, in favor of the United States' role in the world as as a uh, representative of democratic values. He he doesn't he doesn't paper over all all of these really disgusting negations of those values throughout American history. And I just think that's a balance it's difficult to find these days. You know, I mean, Trump says we're going to 
we're, or he said, we're going to establish the 1776 Commission, you know, for patriotic education. I mean, have you ever heard a more Orwellian expression than that? I mean, it's just incredible. You don't you don't have to be an idiotic flag waving dunce um, to recognize that the United States does, in fact, um, have some commitment to the emancipating and revolutionary ideals that other countries uh, strive to emulate. So, I mean, on on that on that um, on that point, I think uh, as somebody who has never set, even set foot in the United States of America, um, but who uh, is currently living uh, in a country uh, born and bred in this country. Um, D- don't do it! Where... Don't do it, Daniel. Retain your innocence. <laughs> well, well, this country, Scotland, where we have just uh, passed a, a really uh, disgusting, um, censorious law which can criminalise speech in private homes, um, then I do just want to uh, make the point that yes, uh, for all of uh, the the flaws of the US, uh, some of the principles that you hold. Uh, such as the First Amendment, are really quite uh, important to the rest of us and and still, even now, the envy uh, of of the rest of the world. Uh, but on the, on the CRT point, um, I think Hitchens once said uh, about creationism, you know, yeah, let's teach it. Fine, teach it. Teach it in, in science classes. Uh, you know, let's see who wins when we put creationism and... Uh, and evolutionary science against each other. Yeah, fine, teach them. Um, you know, truth will out. Uh, and whether you think that CRT and creationism are, are comparable, the point the, the point is that uh, that he clearly thought that these uh, completely um, unpopular or uh, controversial ideas should be taught uh, in schools uh, implies quite heavily that he did not think that banning certain uh, theories or ideas uh, from, from from the classroom was uh, a, a good uh, position to take. Um, now, I think we were going to end on uh, a reading from Hitch, were we not, Iona? Uh, yes, let's, let's go to the... Um, so, uh, my final question to all three of you is, um, if you... Um, if you encountered somebody who'd never heard of Hitch and you wanted to explain to them why it is that he is, what it is that you love about him. Um, And you could only read to them two or three paragraphs of his writing or short excerpt of his writing um, that would illustrate the qualities that you most enjoy about Hitch. Uh, What piece would you choose? And rather than telling us, maybe just read it. Okay, Matt, you start. Okay, so you're going to get a twofer here. One of these paragraphs is from God is Not Great, and the other one is from Letters to a Young Contrarian. Um, They're very brief, don't worry. This is from God is Not Great. If you examine the beauty and symmetry of the double helix and then go on to have your own genome sequence fully analyzed, you will be at once impressed that such a near-perfect phenomenon is at the core of your being and reassured, I hope, that you have so much in common with other tribes of the human species, race having gone along with creation into the ash can. I'm further fascinated to learn how much you are a part of the animal kingdom as well. And this one is from Letters to a Young Contrarian. 
we still inhabit the prehistory of our race and have not caught up with the immense discoveries about our own nature and about the nature of the universe. The unspooling of the skein of the genome has effectively abolished racism and creationism, and the amazing findings of Hubble and Hawking have allowed us to guess at the origins of the cosmos. But how much more addictive is the familiar, familiar old garbage about tribe and nation and faith? Thank you. It's beautiful. Ben, would you like to go next? Uh, certainly. So uh, I, I will say that that um, you know during that that last discussion, uh, you know, I, I I did spend some time thinking about people on um, on the contemporary left who I think have continued some of the things that that Hitchens uh, was was very good on, you know, about free speech and so on. You know, you can think about um, Noam Chomsky or you know or or Matt Carp, who's an editor at Jacobin, both signing the Harper's letter or Adolf Reed criticizing identity politics. Um, but but I at the at the risk uh, of um, you know I of of seeming you know of, of seeming contentious just because it, it's it's a phase of of his views that I I think um, you know hasn't gotten as you know, as, as much love in this conversation as I would like to give it, and also because whether you agree with it or disagree with it, I think we have to admit that it's very, very good writing. Uh, this is uh, from his 1986 essay, Blunt Instruments. I've never been able, except in my lazier moments, to employ the word predictable as a term of abuse, nor has the expression knee-jerk ever struck me as a witty way of denigrating a set of strongly held convictions the pseudoscientific word Pavlovian, which is often used by mistake to describe a non-conditioned reflex, is even less help. It is favored by the sort of sage who describes a schizophrenic, someone who is too of two minds about where to eat lunch. Such sages will describe as paranoid or conspiracy theorist, anyone who believes the CIA hired the mafia to kill Fidel Castro, or that the FBI sent notes to Martin Luther King Jr. urging him to commit suicide. Speaking purely for myself, I should be alarmed if my knee failed to respond to certain stimuli. It would warn me of a loss of nerve. I've written in the past year about the MX missile, constructive engagement, the confirmation of Edwin Meese, uh, and other Grand Gunal episodes. Naturally, I hope that my arguments were original, but I would be depressed to think that anyone who knew me or my stuff could not easily have predicted the line I would take. In the charmed circle of neoliberal and neoconservative journalism, however, Unpredictability is the special emblem and certificate of self-congratulation. To be able to bray that as a liberal, I say bomb the shit out of them, is to achieve that eye-catching, versatile marketability that is so beloved of editors and talk show hosts. As a lifelong socialist, I say don't let's bomb the shit out of them. See what I mean? It lacks the sex appeal somehow. Predictable as hell. Thank you. Um, yes, well, I want to finish on, uh, you know, maybe a less uh, political um, uh, piece. Uh, it's from uh, Hitch 22, uh, where uh, Hitchens is uh, going to Greece to uh, deal with his mother's death. Um, and at the same time, uh, you know, this this is the time of the uh, Athens Polytechnic uprising against uh, the junta um, and it's at the time when um, Ionadis is uh, trying to reassert uh, dictatorial power 
uh, over Greece. So it's a it's, a, it's an interesting combination of poli- of the political and the personal. The atmosphere of that week at the end of November 1973 is instantly accessible to me and in an almost minute-by-minute way. I can remember seeing the students yelling defiance from behind the wrecked gates of the rebellious Athens Polytechnic after the broad daylight and undisguised massacre of the unarmed anti-junta protesters. I can remember meeting friends with bullet wounds that they dared not take to the hospital. I recall, too, a party in a poor student's crummy upstairs apartment where those present made the odd gesture of singing the Internationale almost under their breath, lest they attract the attention of the ever-prowling secret police. My old notebook still contains the testimony of torture victims, with their phone numbers written backward in my clumsy attempt to protect them if my notes were seized. It was one of my first forays into the world of death, into the world of the death squad and the underground and the republics of fear. I was going through all of these motions while I awaited a bureaucratic verdict of which I was already fairly sure. My mother had not been murdered. She had, with her lover, contracted a pact of suicide. She took an overdose of sleeping pills, perhaps washed down with a mouthful or two of alcohol, while he, whose need to die must have been very great, took an overdose with booths also and, to make assurance doubly sure, slashed himself in a hot bath. I shall never be sure what depth of misery had made this outcome seem to her the sole recourse. On the hotel's switchboard record were several attempted calls to my number in London, which the operator had failed to connect. Who knows what might have changed if Yvonne could have heard my voice, even in her extremity. I might have said something to cheer or even tease her, something to set against her despair and perhaps give her a momentary purchase against the death wish. A second to last piece of wretchedness almost completes this episode. Whenever I hear the dull word closure, I am made to realise that I, at least, will never achieve it. This is because the Athens police made me look at a photograph of Yvonne as she had been discovered. I will tell you nothing about this except that the scene was decent and peaceful, but that she was off the bed and on the floor, and that the bedside telephone had been dislodged from its cradle. It's impossible to read this bit of forensics with certainty, but I shall always have to wonder if she had briefly regained consciousness, or perhaps even belatedly regretted her choice and tried, at the very last, to stay alive. At all events, this is how it ends. I am eventually escorted to the hotel suite where it all happened. The two bodies had had to be removed and their coffins sealed before I could get there. This was for the dismally sordid reason that the dead couple had taken a while to be discovered. The pain of this is so piercing and exquisite and the scenery of the two rooms so nasty and so tawdry that I hide my tears and my nausea by pretending to seek some air at the window. And there, for the first time, I receive a shattering, full-on view of the Acropolis. For a moment, and like the Berlin Wall and other celebrated vistas when glimpsed for the first time, it almost resembles some remembered postcard of itself. But then it becomes utterly authentic and unique. That temple really must be the Parthenon, and almost near enough to stretch out and touch. The room behind me is full of death and darkness and depression, but suddenly here again and fully present is the flash and dazzle and brilliance of the green, blue and white 
of the life-giving Mediterranean air and light that lent me my first hope and confidence. I only wish I could have been clutching my mother's hand for this too. Yvonne, then, was the exotic and the sunlit, when I could easily have had a boyhood of stern and dutiful English grey. She was the cream in the coffee, the gin in the Campari, the offer of wine or champagne instead of beer, the laugh in the faces of boars and purse mouths and skin flints, the insurance against bigots and prudes. Her defeat and despair were also mine for a long time, but I have reason to know that she wanted me to withstand the woe. When I once heard myself telling someone that she had allowed me a second identity, I quickly checked myself and thought, no, perhaps with luck, she had, re she had represented my first and truest one. Thank you so much. Um, thank you, all three of you, for being here. And um, I think that that would be a great place to end. And thank you, all of you, for joining me. All right. Thank you, Ayana. Thanks so much. Enjoy it, guys. Wonderful. And have a wonderful week, everyone. If you're hearing this, you have been listening to one of our full-length public episodes. To access full-length versions of all our episodes, support the podcast on Patreon at 2 for Tea. You can also find us on Twitter at 2 for Tea PC. Papa Charlie. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.